We understood that God was holy and love and different and powerful, but we never knew how much the Creator loved us until we heard the story of Jesus. And then she said, but when the missionaries came, she said that little gap widened as wide as the Grand Canyon. They didn't recognize anything that the Indian people had observed and experienced in our relationship with Creator. Um, they only thought that theirs was the one that was valid, and so they had to convert us to theirs, rather than them being converted to ours, which would have been a, a better scenario given that they were on our land. The, and the first dilemma of the, you know, the settlers who came here was that, you know, they met a people who were uh, much more Christ-like than themselves, you know. Well, hey everyone, welcome to the Liminal Living Podcast. This is uh, Dr. Tom Rundell, curator of conversations around here, and. Uh, today we have a really, really helpful conversation. Uh, we have Reverend Dr. Randy Woodley. Uh, I ran into uh, Randy's work because we share the same school. Uh, he was a teacher and I was a student, although I never had him as a teacher. He was in a different program. Uh, but I knew him because he was a prominent voice over there um, in areas of, you know, spirituality, earth care, uh, racial, ethnic identities, all that kind of stuff. He's, um, uh, he is a Native American, uh, Cherokee-rooted uh, individual who is also a follower of Christ, and he makes that distinction. Um, he is not necessarily a Christian who has, um, you know, embraced Native American spirituality, uh, but vice versa, he, his identity is uh, uh, his indigenous identity, and he follows Christ with it. And we talk about that and the process of decolonizing the faith, um, this need to be right, this need uh, to be supreme. Um, this is all a part of the uh, white supremacy, colonialism, Western worldview that is just interwoven through the fabric of our entire society and we can't see it um, when we're in the midst of it and we kind of talk about my own journey out of it some of it I'm still journeying on that and his voice has been very helpful for me um, but it's a just really challenging yet very helpful and beautiful conversation that I had with Randy today and I really think uh, you're going to enjoy it so here's my conversation with Randy well, uh, welcome to the Liminal Living Podcast, and uh, today I get to talk with uh, somebody I've been very excited uh, to talk uh, to, and uh, we've had to reschedule this a couple of times because of some medical things happening on my end, and I'm really uh, thankful that we get to have it uh, today. But today we have uh, Reverend Dr. Randy Woodley. Uh, who is an expert voice in the arenas concerning uh, spirituality and earth care, uh, racial and uh, ethnic identity, diversity, peace, social justice, eco-justice, um, and the list goes on. Author of six books. Um, did I get that number right, Randy? Six books? Uh, actually, it's uh, about nine books. So yeah, uh, Nine books. That is astounding. Uh, also, a farmer. So, um, I am excited to talk with Randy today. Randy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. I am glad that you're here. Uh, now, this is our first time uh, talking, but I realized when I was researching uh, who you are that we actually have two connection points already. Now, I grew up in Metro Detroit area in Redford, and you grew up in Willow Run, which is by Ypsilanti, which is kind of near Detroit. And I never got there. 
Um, but that's one connection point. And the second connection point is you, um, you uh, taught at George Fox uh, University, and that's my doctorate alma mater. So we have two points of connection, but now we finally converge and have this conversation. So, yeah. And I'm retired from uh, Portland Seminary, George Fox University, uh, as of December 15th. So I'm now Professor Emeritus. And you're uh, graduated, so that makes us uh, have another point of contact. We both have left Fox. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. That, that is cool. Well, you graduated. Uh, you graduated. You graduated work. That's what they call retiring. <laughs> yeah. uh, that would be this past December? Yeah. Yeah. All right. I retired. Well, um, you are such an interesting person i've been listening to some books that you've written uh and just there's, there's so much great content that you bring to the table but before we dive into like what you know i want to know who you are so can you kind of tell us uh, you know who are you who are your people and what is the soil that you have grown out of yeah well i'm a mixture of a lot of different things um so i'm a uh this Cherokee descendant recognized by the United Ketua Band of Cherokee Indians in Oklahoma. Um, I'm a Southern guy. I, uh, my roots are in the South, like a lot of people in the uh, Detroit area. Uh, my parents went up for the great migration and, and my dad used to say, uh, they taught them the three R's down South. That was a reading, writing and road to Detroit. And uh, <laughs> I have not heard that before. Yeah, so he worked like a lot of people for Ford Motor Company for a while, and then he started his own uh, uh, seat cover business, um, which is, you know, uh, related to the auto industry. And uh, grew up there um, and uh, moved to, uh, when I was uh, uh, just 13, moved to a small farm town called Saline, Michigan. And um, I was very different than everyone else there. <laughs> And uh, uh, left there, and I've lived. Oh, geez, I've lived all over the place, and um, you name it, I probably lived there. But uh, yeah, so uh, my life really changed when I went to Alaska, and I was. Uh, those are my years. I call my missionary oppressor years, or a couple years up there, mm. and I left there not wanting to oppress our own native people again, and. Went to seminary um, and uh, back east, Philadelphia, um, got an MDiv, uh, started uh, in the ministry at that time, um, met my wife, um, and uh, uh, we've lived a few places, uh, pastored a church in Nevada for seven years. I was a coordinator for the Oklahoma Indian American Baptist Churches in Oklahoma, dean of students at Bacon Indian College. I did a a lot of little kind of things like that. And then uh, finally in 2000, well, I guess it was officially 1999, we started our own organization. And uh, and now that has developed over the years into what is now Alahay Indigenous Center for Earth Justice and Alahay Farm and Seeds. And uh, we're a, sort of a, a teaching school. Uh, we are teaching farm, if you will. A learning center and uh, we have schools and then we speak a lot to other places and you know, write some books and you know all those kinds of things mm. trying to have some influence in the world um so hopefully it's uh those those are worth reading 
Mm, yeah. Now, somewhere along the way, it sounded like you picked up the faith. Um, you said you had some oppressive oppressor mis- missionary years. You went to a seminary. You're a pastor. Like, how did you connect with the Christian faith? Where did that start? Yeah, so because uh, this shows all about liminality, I had that liminal space um, when I was uh, 19 years old. Um, I was, uh, you know, uh, addicted to meth, and uh, my life was falling apart. And uh, that's when uh, I met Jesus. And uh, at that point, um, all I asked was one thing. If you can deliver me from these drugs, I'll follow you the rest of my life. And so um, that's what happened. I immediately got up from there and never had the desire to do drugs again. And it was a sort of a miraculous experience. I wish uh, everybody who asked that who's on drugs could have the same experience as me, but that's, that's what happened to me. Hmm. Now, how did you know to call on Christ to help you in that time? Was there hmm. some faith roots? Well, I had, yeah, I had, uh, my parents um, were Christians and uh, I had grown up kind of going to a little Baptist church in Ypsilanti there in Willow Run. Mm. And um, and so then I left there when I, I'd made a, a commitment when I was 10 years old at a camp um, and then sort of like wandered away from that. And then at age 19, sort of found myself like, well, if this is who God is, that's who I need to ask to to change me. And so, um, yeah, it was a back, back because of my roots. Was that as dramatic as it sounds where you're like, where you're asking God for help? Or was there like, or was it kind of boring and it's just, I just woke up the next day. Nothing boring about it. I was, uh, I was actually, um, by myself in a room. Um, and I prayed that prayer and then, uh, went unconscious Mm. and I woke up and all of a sudden i felt different and uh so i had this uh, miraculous uh, experience and um it changed my life wow wow so you do you know how long you were out for i don't wow i have not heard a conversion story like that i mean that was kind of like paul getting knocked off his horse but (laughs) yeah well i I had a similar experience one time when I was, uh, um, we were living in Kentucky and I was, we were raising horses and cattle and things and we had an electric fence and I, I accidentally hit my forehead on one of the wires and I found myself, uh, waking up again. And it reminded me of that experience. Oh, wow. Where did it go from there? You, you made kind of that decision and all of a sudden you are not doing meth anymore or drugs. Like what happens next? Yeah. So I basically went to all my friends and said, you know, Hey, I can't keep doing this. And I'm, you know, I'm going to follow Jesus from this point on. And, you know, and, and then I started going to church and, you know, nice, really nice people at church and everything else. But, but at the time I was sort of like, uh, uh, I guess you'd say, uh, um, I want to be American Indian movement to aim person. Uh, and I, you know, had long hair and, uh, so I wear Warren braids. I had big, you know, radical Indian posters all over my room and everything. And, and those nice people at church said, you know, all of that is of the flesh, quote unquote. Yeah. And, uh, and you need to just, you know, get rid of all that and, you know, and just basically be like us, mm-hmm. uh, which is totally assimilated. Right. Yeah. 
And so I, uh, I tried that for a number of years and couldn't ever get used to that. And I finally found my way back to uh, being Indian again. Um, and, uh, and that was, uh, sort of the, the path to freedom for me to be able to like, uh, feel good about where I was in, mm. in my faith. Yeah. How did you connect to your Cherokee roots? Was that something you grew up knowing about or did you discover it? Yeah, I knew about it, um, growing up. Um, my mother was very proud of the fact that we descended from a, a particular, um, chief and, uh, um, but her father, who's the in line for that descendancy, had died when she was three years old. So I had to sort of go to all his relatives and my grandmother to collect all that information. And my father also had, it comes from a mixed blood background, but he didn't really know a lot about that. I had to discover that on my own too. But um, basically, um, yeah, it, it's, uh, you know, it was a uh, sort of a given and uh but i was in a very as you know um will runs very multi-ethnic multiracial, multicultural and so i grew up with a whole lot of uh, people and a whole lot of different ethnic identities and kind of discovered um you know saw saw that as my own and and held on to it yeah what where's this jump from this point to becoming a missionary to Alaska? Yeah, so uh, so the, the idea was to, you know, uh, quote unquote, help our native people, right? Mm -hmm. So I went to Alaska. I was, a, I was a chaplain at a college that I graduated from in Denver, Colorado, and then that college went defunct. And, uh, and then at that point I went to Alaska as a missionary and, uh, I saw when I was up there that, that this was really probably the, uh, similar to the oppression that my own people went through at one point and, uh, sort of had to live a double life up there. I was, uh, uh very much like, you know, um, trying to uh, not oppress the kids, but at the same time, you know, perform the program that it was, it was a behavior mod program. And uh, yeah, and so that was uh, very painful. And, uh, and so I decided, you know, at that point, like, like how can I live my faith and not oppress my own people? And so that's when I decided to go to seminary and uh, went to uh, what was then called Eastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Now it's called uh, Palmer. But uh, I had great people like uh, 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 Ron Sider and Tony Campolo and Montford Brauk and you know a lot of really really great people that really helped inform my faith at that point and and I basically set out to say like well how how do I do this without oppressing our native people and that's that was really um, those years were my time of discovery um, as to like uh, like how do you not be a missionary oppressor. So, mm. Is there like a moment where your eyes were open to this is not helpful? This is not gospel. This is oppressive. Is there a oh, single yeah. moment? It was, it was not long after I got there. I was uh, in Alaska. I was there for two years and I had to, I'd made a commitment for two years. And it was not long after I got there that I understood like this is, this is, uh, this is against these uh, young people's culture. Um, uh, I was a, what's called a teaching parent. And um, uh, it was very much uh, against their culture rather than working 
their, their culture wasn't even considered. Basically, the whole program was assimilative. And um, and so I struggled with that for two years until I finally uh, broke free of that. Yeah. Wow. Now, you kind of have these uh, Baptist roots and, you know, they're very evangelical, which is, you know, you have to convert the lost. Um. Yeah, I was a, what we call a flaming evangelist at one point. Okay, yeah. I, I did what they told me you were supposed to do. Exactly what you were supposed to do. I have some fundamentalist roots that I broke free from uh, and still trying to make sense of that, which is why I like to have conversations like this. Um, a couple of years ago, I started to pull on the thread of colonization in my faith when I was listening to a podcast uh, called Three Black Men and... They were talking about the doctrine of inerrancy of the scripture, how they experience that uh, as black men in the church um, is you can have your theological conversations uh, over there. They're nice side things, you know, liberation theology and all that. That's, that's great over there, but we are the holders of what is true. We are the holders of the dogma and the people who got to uh, frame that were from that Western worldview, uh, European white, um, colonizing thing. And my eyes were open to that point. I was having a hard time, uh, with the doctrine of inerrancy anyways. But when, uh, when they said that they experienced it as a form of colonialism or white supremacy, mm -hmm. my, I just was shaken. Like I had never thought about that as a form of this colonization because it's like interwoven into like the fabric of my faith and my upbringing and how I practiced it. And, um, you know, like you were saying that this is just what we do. Uh, we got to go over there. Is there a point yeah. that well, I call it the magic book theory, the magic right. book theory, what, tell me about that. Well, like the Bible is this magic book that, you know, was put together by the Holy spirit and, you know, humans had very little to do with it. And so it, it's, it's inerrant, right. And uh, which is just a crazy way of, of saying, you know, what we say it says uh, is what it is, which has been used to oppress people uh, ever since the third century. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, and I always used to hold my students, my students would, would say, well, that's not what the Bible says. And I'd say, oh, what's the Bible saying? And they'd start, I said, no, no, hold, hold up to your ear. Hold your Bible up to you. This is when people still have Bibles, not electronics. <laughs> now, what's the Bible saying? Wow. And they were like, what do you mean? What does it say? I'm like, well, you said the Bible says. What's it saying? And they said, well, and I said, no, it says what you say it says. Mm -hmm. And that's the whole point. It says what we say it says. It doesn't speak for itself. Wow. Um, it speaks through our interpretive lens. And most of our interpretive lenses are built on colonial patterns of oppression and uh, destruction and with native people, genocide. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, wow, that is a really powerful way to get someone to encounter that colonial perspective of the Bible, because, um, you know, that whole that whole phrase, the Bible says, uh, I've never thought to have someone just hold it up to their ear and like, what's it telling you? That is so good. I love that. I'm, I may adopt that one myself. So thank <laughs> you. Thank you for that gift. Um, 
People don't, people don't carry Bibles anymore. They just carry their electronic device. Yeah, <laughs> hold your phone up, and now it actually will like read. Now they can actually make it talk and say, "Well, here's what it says." <laughs> yeah, that that whole the, you make the Bible say what it says. You know, when we say the Bible is inerrant, oftentimes what I encounter is that person views their interpretation of the Bible as inerrant. Absolutely. And then that interpretation, uh, and so I started saying something uh, a couple of years ago when I was pulling on that thread of colonialism that says, you know, evangelism is just theological colonialism uh, in many of its modern forms. We're trying to get the way of, um, you know, our information in their heads and then all our doctrines in their heads. And then that is going to also come, you know, with our culture and our values. And, right. you know, I, go, I went to college uh, at a little Bible college in uh, Farmington Hills, Michigan, called William Tyndale College. It also went defunct. They closed right after I graduated. Um, but there's all these other, you know, white Christian kids. And the first time I encountered something different than white evangelicalism was in a class where an inner city um, black man from Detroit was the teacher. And he was a pastor and he had this vibrant faith and I was looking up to him. And then he started to talk about how um, he didn't vote Republican. And I thought, there's no way Christians cannot vote Republican because I grew <laughs> up just with that, that fundamentalism that being a Christian brings all of these beliefs and cultures and values, and that is all tied to a Republican party because we're pro-life and the only pro-life party is this. And I remember the whole class lost its mind. Like, how can you even you know, vote for someone who's for abortion. That was the only thing on the table. And he started bringing out all of these other issues that affect, you know, urban culture that I, in my suburban, uh, not very nice suburban, Redford isn't that nice, but I, you know, what didn't have the total effects of urbanization and being white, you know, I had certain privileges there, but um, we didn't see any of that. And we still left that class thinking, um, you know, there's something wrong with that guy because he's just not quite as Christian as we are because, and right. that, that whole colonialism is right there. And I never, well, that's part of the it. cult of colonialism, right? Christian colonialism mm. is to, you know, it's, uh, it's all the rules are there. And, uh, you know, if you don't follow the rules that have been set, then you're a heretic, you're outside the faith. So, um, yeah, I mean, and that's one of the reasons I wrote the, I wrote, uh, well, really two books, but the particular book, I wrote a book in, that was published in 2022 called Mission and the Cultural Other, uh, A Closer Look, to talk about the colonialism and white supremacy that's embedded in American mission. Mm. And mm -hmm. so um, that's that was sort of my, uh, uh, you know, collective uh, uh, wisdom of, you know, teaching uh, missiology and all these other things for the last 20-something uh, years. Yeah, when you when you like pull that whole colonial piece out of evangelism and what that means, what have you found you're left with? Yeah, so you're left with an authentic faith. Mm. I think that's the most important thing. Um, one that's not based on objectifying other people, but on uh, actually getting to know people and uh, sharing from your heart and being vulnerable and all the attributes that I would say are exhibited by Christ. Getting to know people instead of trying to convert people. You talked about that objectification of the other. 
in your um, your work, Indigenous Theology in the Western Worldview, which everyone has to read that book. That is an amazing book. Um, it helped solidify some of the thoughts that have just been like floating. It connected things for me. There's a story that you told in that book that stands out to me. I thought it was just so powerful. I can't, I'll, I'll never forget it. You, you were talking with a woman of the one tribe. I cannot remember the tribe, but it was a tribe that you were talking with this woman. And you said that she said, you know, we were this close to understanding how good God was. And then the missionaries came. Yeah. And like when I heard you tell that story and recount that story, like my heart sunk because they, oh, can you, do you recall that story? Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's just, it's, that was um, what my Kiowa mom, uh, Libby, had told me one time, um, you know, when we were talking about this, uh, I'm a, uh, we have a thing called the making a relative ceremony in Indian way. And so we're, we have a lot of people being adopted as sons and daughters and uncles and aunties. And, and uh, so she's my adopted Kiowa mom. And, uh, and yeah, and she said, you know, we were, we were this close uh, before the missionaries came. We were, we understood that, you know, God was holy and love and, you know, different and, you know, uh, all of these kinds of things, powerful, but, uh, but we never, never knew how much, you know, the creator loved us until we heard the story of Jesus, right. Mm -hmm. uh, who gave himself for the people. And, uh, and then she said, but when the missionaries came, she said that little, little, uh, gap, why? as wide as the Grand Canyon oh, gosh. and uh, because they they didn't uh, they didn't recognize anything that the Indian people had uh, observed and experienced in our relationship with Creator um, they only thought that theirs was the one that was valid and so they had to convert us to theirs rather than them being converted to ours which would have been a, a better scenario given that they were on our land mm. Mm, that I've been, I've heard that referred to as Christian supremacy. Oh, yeah. So the, and the first dilemma of the, you know, the settlers who came here was that, you know, they met a people who were uh, much more Christ-like than themselves, you know. My brain just exploded a little bit. And that is... Never heard the name of Jesus. So, um, yeah, the, uh, you know, take, take the Puritans, for example. Um, you know, they were trying to purify the Church of England and show that they had the most vibrant faith, and and yet they were devilish in in all their ways. And uh, and Native people, you know, were kind and hospitable, and you know, not perfect by any means, and not utopian society, but but much more Christ-like and humble, and kind of you know, other kinds of attributes than. Uh, than they were, and uh, they exhibited much more Christ than than most of them. Not all of them, but mm -hmm. most of them. Yeah, I remember reading uh, Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States, uh, and when he started to quote Christopher Columbus's own journal in his own words about his encounter with how kind and good uh, the people were that he's encountering uh, in indigenous lands. I think it was. Um, uh, down south in the islands. And then the next words out of his mouth, it's going to be so easy to enslave these people. Yeah, exactly. 
And he's doing this for God. He's doing this for Christ, you know, glory and the crown and the king. And it's all tied to that colonial understanding that the colonial Western way is the supreme way, the only way, the best way. And then you interweave, um, you know, Christianity in there. And it really hasn't gone away um, at all because you see how, you know, this conservative religious right is tying itself to conservative Republican politics and figures that are not uh, Christ-like in any way, but they're saying they're both the same thing and they're both supreme and the best. And uh, are you seeing that? Uh, do you have words to describe that as well? <laughs> well, I think Blaise Pascal said it best. I can't remember the quote exactly, but he said, uh, men never do evil so cheerfully as when they do it in the name of God. Oh, gosh. I remember you quoted that. In your book, um, Indigenous Theology in the Western World, you quoted that, and that one blew up my brain then, and it did it now too. But yeah, I've been as I've been reading the Gospels, and I'm a pastor, um, and we're we kind of view the liturgical church, we're a congregational church, um, and uh, we we view the liturgical calendar, and I'm stuck in the Gospels. I can't leave the Gospels because. Every time I see the words and the ways and the works of Jesus, um, it's reshaping my brain in my old fundamentalist ways. And it's, it's, it's showing how like Jesus lived a critique to the systems of power, the systems of religious oppression and religious abuse of, you know, just the everyday farming people. Mm-hmm. And he, that's, that was how he became you know, so popular among the people was that he was speaking truth to these power structures where it might be in Rome or, you know, uh, uh, in, in the Hebrew uh, tradition. Um, and I never saw any of that in my fundamentalist days because I, I think I had more of a Paulianity where I would just, I read Paul and I interpreted Jesus through the writings of Paul. Um, and even the Old Testament, I elevated this Old Testament God who's vengeful and, uh, you know, you know, calling for genocide and all these things. And it's, it's there, it's in our scriptures, you know, it's, it's, it's there, but then Jesus is the critique of that. And yeah. I, well, yeah, I, I, um, I think I was, I was a red letter Christian before the red letter Christians, but, um, it, it, it just hit me a long, long time ago. If it doesn't line up with the teachings of Jesus, then uh, there's something wrong with the scripture or someone's interpretation of it or something, because it is called Christianity after Christ. Um, and then I you know, came to the point where I said, well, we're no longer Christians. We're just native followers of Jesus. So uh, Christianity really is um, not something that uh, Jesus really, <laughs> Western Christianity is definitely not the religion that he would have started if he came to start a religion, in which I'm not convinced he did. I think mm-hmm. he just came to start a movement back to God mm. and uh, back to people and uh, understanding the connection there of, of everything. So, um, yeah, uh, you know, Western Christianity has it all wrong. I mean, that's just the bottom line. And the theologies are very, very much built upon colonial uh, presumptions. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure, uh, you know, you, you can, I like to say, you can be a Christian and follow Jesus, but it's extremely difficult. Wow. 
I've had a hard time being a pastor in the Christian faith with this understanding that's ever growing and expanding. And I have landed in a church that is covenantal and not creedal. Uh, we have a very loose creed that we, um, there's basically seven sentences that, um, you know, you're allowed to interpret with your own conscience and still be a part of who we are if you, you know, vow to live in covenant with us in love. Um, and I found that has been much more helpful than, you know, when I was applying for a job, you know, 10 years ago and they handed me this five page doctrinal statement that says you have to <laughs> sign on the dotted line that you agree with everything here as written or you can't have this job. Right. Yeah, that that's that's so problematic too. And that was the point of the, the book you mentioned, the Indigenous Theology in the Western Worldview, is to understand where that sort of um, disembodied theology comes from. You know, it's handed down all the way from, you know, Platonic dualism and the Greeks and, and uh, you know, comes through a number of different uh, renditions and then finally out into the, you know, the Renaissance and then born out of the Renaissance or the two uh, movements that doubled down on that uh, disembodied uh, understanding, which is uh, the Enlightenment movement, yeah. which uh, said reason um, beats experience every time. And uh, the Reformation, which said um, it's your belief that matters, not your experience. Yeah. And so, um, by and large, then people said, well, then belief is so important, uh, you know, we can kill each other over it, be in the name of God, right? Mm -hmm. So you had the Crusades and you had the Inquisition and you had the, the uh, fights between Protestants and Mennonites and Lutherans and you know, others and, you know, uh, burning people at the stake and uh, wiping out whole councils that disagreed, and, you know, because belief became the most important thing. And, you know, it's a it's really ironic that, you know, these are all uh, the uh, polar opposite of what Jesus taught. You know, he's taught love one another. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that you. Um, uh, well, I should say love loving one another does mean that you can have different beliefs and still love one another. And that's the part that the Christ, Western Christianity has missed. Yeah. And it seems like that has just been hyper polarized in the last um, few years, five years or so, where there's this polarization where there's no conversation happening anymore. It's just people with bullhorns yelling back at each other and trying to get people on their side versus the other side. Um, that, that phrase disembodied belief, um, what in a, in a faith that believes in an incarnate God, <laughs> it seems absolutely, it, I mean, I grew up with the disembodied faith. It was ideas in my brain that I had to be right on or I'd go to hell and burn. And it was totally disembodied. And yet we follow a God who enfleshed among us and walked among us. And I just find it so ironic that we have come so far from the enfleshment. I really like how you said that you're a native follower of Christ and not just a Christian. Um, do you think there's any hope to maintain the title Christian or is that too tainted? I think so, some people will, but more and more people aren't. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm seeing uh, lots of different kinds of uh, movements and uh, 
that come up who are not identifying anymore with, with those words, but are identifying with simply um, being faithful to Jesus and walking the walk that Jesus walked. So um, new expressions of communities that gather who aren't calling themselves churches. And so I think this is where um, the, uh, the faith is going, if you will, um, or the faithful are going, maybe I should say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, there will always be the steeple with the chapel and people putting all their money into the buildings and things like that, which is, you know, just a distraction um, from what the real purpose is, um, which has to do with, you know, um, what I would call our harmony way, uh, shalom, if you want to use a Hebrew construct, mm-hmm. uh, shalom, Sabbath, Jubilee construct, where, you know, it's, it's both personal and structural, and um, and we show our faith by our love, right? Mm-hmm. So, and our love comes out by how we care for other people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did, um, when I was doing my doctorate, I did some diving into the word shalom. I wrote a a paper on it um, and found out that the word shalom is the Bible's word for salvation. And I like tracked it through the Septuagint and its translation from Hebrew into Greek and how it was uh, the Greek word telos, which means perfection or created intention, Um, peace, uh, which is, you know, in harmony. Um, and then salvation, uh, which means an actual rescue, whether it be physical or spiritual. And I was just shocked to see that concept of shalom and salvation is not about saving souls with the right information, but about establishing like this created intention among the people and communities and neighborhoods that they live in. And that was salvation. That was God's plan. And it kind of expanded that that view that was so narrow before um so i really love your work with shalom yeah i i wrote a book called shalom in the community of creation and indigenous vision where i talked about the some of it's based on my doctoral work uh, my phd dissertation of of uh, the commonality of values between the biblical use of shalom and our native people and our understandings and really indigenous people everywhere but um yeah, and even that word salvation, I think um, a much better choice now is the word healing. Mm. Um, yeah, so I really um, like that change. Yeah. Um, I, some of the um, some of the minority communities that I follow have changed salvation to liberation as well, um, and they're using that uh, that phrase to interchangeably. Mm-hmm. And I think that change of vocabulary is really important for when certain words have meant certain things for so long, even if it wasn't how they started. Changing the vocabulary, I think it helps us to see it from a different angle um, and come back to its intention, but with a modern expression of it. And that's been helpful. And and also uh, to widen that, um, it's, it's not you know, Shalom is just not for people. It's for everything. It's for the earth. It's mm. the, the earth rest, you know, where animals can come and eat freely. And, you know, all of these things are, are within this whole Shalom Sabbath Jubilee construct. Um, there's an excellent book by a friend of mine, um, former professor uh, Howard Snyder, who wrote a book called uh, Salvation is Creation Healed that really deals with that. And I, I highly recommend that. I used to use it in my coursework. 
Yeah, expanding, that's something that I think is very excluded in that colonial understanding because creation is something that we are to use to further our own power and riches, uh, something. And, you know, the whole capitalism is built on what they believed were innumerable resources of of the earth. There's whales in the ocean. You know, there's you're never going to be able to to fish them all. You know, there's salmon. There's trees. And if you look at even in Michigan, you look at what trees used to look like um, before the loggers got here, and it's it's astounding how they were like the sequoias. I mean, they're monstrously huge in these historic pictures, but they're gone now because we used them to build the colonies. Uh, and you, bringing in that whole creation piece as a part of God's salvation is not objectifying creation as a thing we are to use to you know, further ourselves along, but something that we are to live in harmony with. I think that's a really beautiful inclusion and one that we are sorely missing in modern day and age. Yeah, and there's a parallel in the in the uh, new book. My wife and I have written a book together called Journey to Elahe. Um, how let's see, it's called Indigenous Values that Can Bring Harmony and Well Being. I think it's called, and uh, that'll be out in uh, October 2024. But um, we talk about uh, how there's a uh, there's a parallel between objectifying creation and objectifying people Mm. and it's the same sort of thing especially women uh especially um people of color um poor people etc the idea is that there's a certain group of people who not only have exploited the earth for all they could get out of it but they've exploited people as well they've used them for their own pleasure they've used them for production they've used them um basically to uh um to uh and just continue to extract from until they are no more. And so um, that same worldview, which I call the Western worldview, is uh, tied into what's happened to our earth and what's happening to our world right now. Um, we can blame the Western worldview. It's a failed experiment. And it's time that uh, we converted away from it. Now, that word, Elohe, that you've uh, you know, you have the Indigenous Center for Earth Justice, and then you also have the Farm and Seeds. What, what is the uh, translation of Elohe? What does that mean? Yeah, so that would be comparable to um, this uh, Harmony Way, which would be the biblical word for Shalom, or um, and and also Tikkun together. Um, it would be, uh, you know, the the word that Indigenous people have all over the world, uh, in uh, the Zulu have uh, Ubuntu, um, the Navajo have Hojon, the Cherokee have Elahe. Uh, everybody has a different word, but the idea is that these are sort of the original instructions that people have been given to, to how to live in harmony. And Jesus, um, and if you look at his vision quest, and, uh, and then when he appears in Luke 4, to tell what his vision for his being is, what's his purpose, et cetera, is all about restoring that. Um, You know, he quotes out of Isaiah 61, and then he talks about the exclusiveness down where they want to kill him. You know, they, you know, uh, God is not exclusive to Israel. And and, uh, so he's trying to say, Hey, this is, I'm, I'm 
bringing back a correct way of thinking about um, who creator is and how we're supposed to live on this world together. And uh, people didn't, didn't want to hear that. And they still don't want to hear that. They, they still had rather throw a bunch of, you know, Western theolo theology on that's control oriented about, you know, you have to believe this and that in order to uh, be saved. And, and we can give you, we're the ones who control, which came from the church originally, your ticket to heaven and your relatives out of hell or whatever else it is, um, your orthodoxy. And people like to control other people with that, um, with that power. But Jesus didn't teach power. He taught the real power is being vulnerable. Real power is submitting and being a servant rather than trying to be over people. And so um, we don't like that Jesus. You know, that, that Jesus is, doesn't uh, really give any advantage to us on earth. Mm -hmm. In fact, it disadvantages us to, to sort of live in peace and harmony um, rather than gain those things that, you know, the Western worldview says we should gain. Yeah. And I've heard that um, explained away in, you know, my fundamentalist upbringing. It was explained away as these are Jesus's instructions for individuals, but we can't do that collectively as a nation because we have to be about war, because we have to protect our way of life and we have to, you know, use these resources. And so there's like this division between like the individual and their faith. Yes, you be about, you know, peace as much as possible, but collectively as a nation or as a people, you know, we are about war and it's okay there. Have you seen well, that disconnect? We can't really get that from the teachings of Jesus. I mean, he was all about turning over systems of oppression as well as uh, liberating people. And so um, it's only seen through this uh, uh, Western individualistic worldview that you can interpret it that way. And that's the wrong worldview to go to scripture with because no one in scripture wrote them that way. They didn't write post-enlightenment, enlightenment-bound thinking. They wrote pre-enlightenment, tribal, ancient people thinking, which which is very much corporate and cooperative and all of those kinds of things. And so um, you, you come up with those doctrines, that's what I'm saying, throughout Christian history, um, because you've had a bad worldview. And so that worldview will lead you down to these kinds of oppressive ideas. I use this illustration. Um... When I, when I try to tell someone that I've been trying to do the work of decolonizing my faith, and they say, what does that even mean? I say, you know, that there's this little thread sticking out of the sweater, and I start pulling on it, and then I see what comes out. And all of these doctrines and ideas start coming out of it. They're attached to this thing as I keep pulling, you know, the doctrine of inerrancy, the doctrine of uh, Christian supremacy, the doctrine that uh, everybody's going to hell except the people who have the right ideas. That a, a lot of these, um, a lot of these doctrines are attached to this same thread of colonialism, and mm -hmm. I, you know, got plenty of work left to do. But that idea, that construct of pulling on the thread and seeing what's attached to it, disconnecting it from the sweater itself. Is there something that you've had to let go of that you're surprised about? It surprised you, like, oh, I didn't think I would ever question this part of my faith, but here it is, I'm yeah. questioning it. Yeah, 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 well, <laughs> yeah, I think uh, um, I, I think the, the three things that will probably turn a lot of your viewers off uh, who are 
uh, nitpicky about these things, but um, I think uh, you know this the idea that uh, um, hell is a construct that was actually created by the church to keep people in line is one of those things, you know, and uh, the fact that um, uh, Jesus was exclusive to those who um, have belief in him rather than follow him. And uh, uh, I think that, and then the whole idea of original sin, which also was created, you know, to uh, to basically keep people under the thumb of the church. I think when you get rid of those three things, um, you pretty well can understand where Jesus is coming from. Mm. Yeah. And I did a kind of a solo episode on uh, hell judgment and universal reconciliation a little while back. Um, and it seems like that's usually when people are deconstructing, that's the last thing that they're going to let go of is the concept of hell, eternal conscious torment. Um, maybe because there's so much fear attached to it um, that if I let this go, you know, well, I might go I there. I think it's like the major point for Christianity. And I use the, you know, the quotations Christianity. I think that's the major tenet of Christianity that keeps, keeps the fire going, right? That's mm -hmm. those that keeps the engine running is this whole idea of hell. But when you do away with that, then you got a whole different scenario. Yeah. And then uh, I think so it's when you start to discover like, well, why did Jesus really come then? Mm -hmm. I remember I had been practicing uh, meditation for a while. Um, and they talk about things that are going to come up when you've been practicing meditation. And I remember the first day on the office here at this, at this position, uh, I kind of freaked out. Um, I pulled in the parking lot for my first office day and I immediately called my wife and I said, I don't think I'm a Christian anymore. And I don't think I can pastor anymore. And what am I doing? I'm here. And she, she talked me through, well, you're not giving up your whole faith. You're just giving up this concept of hell and you need to save everybody from it. And right. it, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And like, that was my dogma. I didn't understand yeah. that that was the central dogma of my faith until that moment when I actually let it go. And I've been on a whole different journey since that point. Um, yeah. But it does seem yeah. like the central dogma of colonial Christianity is that hell piece. Yeah. And, and being around traditional native people and understanding um, their beliefs has really helped put Jesus in focus for me as well. It's a, uh, you know, the pretty uncomplicated um, understanding of uh, something very simple, which is like Jesus came to bring us all, you know, harmony, mm. shalom, right living, however you want to say it. Um, uh, and uh, as human beings, and the more human we can be, um, the uh, more I think we are like who God made us to be. Yeah. Uh, the more vulnerable we can be, the more spiritual we are. I think I think God is the most vulnerable being who exists, and and so um, when we can finally use our humanity the way we're supposed to, we're we're probably uh, most pleasing to God. Yeah. Well, I've loved this conversation. It's it's just so helpful for me, and I think our listeners to to give perspective on these theologies that are actually psychologically harmful when you yeah. actually look at them and not just psychologically, but socially and even to physical creation itself. 
Um, it, one more question. Is, is there a practice that you have adopted that has helped you navigate these waters of decolonizing and deconstructing your faith to land in this spot that you're in? I'm not a very disciplined person. <laughs> Me either. <laughs> <laughs> I just think a lot and talk a lot and uh, just sort of, uh, uh, you know, um, talk with my friends about these things. And, um, so I guess just having conversation partners uh, about them is, is a good thing. But also my wife and I spend a lot of time talking about some of these things. And mostly it's when we see the misuse and we identify it and we go, that that's wrong. Right. Yeah. So what's right. So I think seeing seeing the thing that's wrong, which you can, as a native person, you've got uh, lots of history and lots of current events that tell you what's wrong, right? Because we know uh, what's the, the Christianity has been used to oppress our people for all these years. So, um, so identifying that and uh, just mulling it over and saying like, what would be a, a better way to do it uh, is uh, is probably the the discipline I have if I have one. That, that sounds good. Vulnerable conversations, I think, is a great practice to have. Well, thank you so much for coming and sharing your, your life and your story and your, your wisdom with us. Uh, it's just been, uh, it's been so helpful for me to read your work and uh, to get this perspective to help me continue to decolonize my faith so that I can be healed and whole and healthy and lead others on that same path as well. And your work has been uh, very vital these last couple of weeks for me. I'm really glad to hear that. Thank you, Tom. Appreciate it. Well, I, I don't know how to end con podcast, so I just stop. Well, thank you so much for listening to the Liminal Living podcast. Uh, this was just a great conversation to have. Uh, so helpful for me. I really encourage you to go uh, look at Randy's work. He's written nine books. Uh, he's written many articles for Sojourners. Um, he has a podcast, Piecing It All Together, uh, which he's not currently posting new stuff, but there's 97 episodes that you can just go and binge uh, if you uh, want plenty of talks uh, online that you can go to. If you go to randywoodley.com, you'll find all of his works all in one place. It's very handy for you. So uh, randywoodley.com, uh, head there now and get all his stuff because it's so helpful uh, and it's going to give you what you need to start decolonizing your faith uh, and becoming more healed and whole and peaceful person. So next week we'll have um, some more conversations. It might be a little Ask Me Anything. I got one of those written. I uh, haven't recorded yet, but I also have more conversations uh, recorded that I need to edit and put out there. I don't know which one's next. We shall see. We shall see. And you shall see next week. Peace out.